Welcome to the Hearsay Storytelling Podcast. I'm Karen Stein. Hearsay is a monthly show dedicated to the art of telling stories on stage. This episode, Summer Reruns, was recorded live on July 16, 2017 at the Upton Morley Pavilion at Interlochen Center for the Arts in Interlochen, Michigan. This show was recorded by Interlochen Public Radio and broadcast in two parts by IPR in October 2017. Here is part one. Hello and welcome to a special edition of Hearsay Storytelling. I'm Dan Wanshura. Hearsay is a live storytelling event in Traverse City. And this summer, Interlock and Public Radio collaborated with Hearsay to bring some of their most memorable stories to the campus of Interlock and Center for the Arts for an evening of storytelling. The resulting show was titled Summer Reruns. And we're going to play those stories from that show in two parts. Tonight, part one. Our first storyteller is Dave Murphy. He tells us about how he accidentally burned his house down with incense. The firefighter, the fire chief, said, write everything down, and then we'll talk about it in the morning. Before I could write everything down, though, I had to make a phone call, and that was to my wife, to let her know that I was probably responsible for burning down the house that we'd lived in for the past 25 years. It's not that I'm afraid of my wife, but it's <laughs> not a typical conversation to have. Um, I knew she was in meetings all day, and so I had to have her paged. And that's a tough part of the story to start with because when she was paged, she knew there were problems, So uh, because I never did that. So she got to the phone and she said, what's going on? Did something happen to you? And I said, no, I'm fine. And she immediately said, what about your mother? Did something happen to her? And I also said, she's fine. And she asked the question because we were caregiving for my mother. But uh, I waited for a second and then I said, um, the reason I'm calling is, you, you know how you've been wanting to remodel? I'm going to leave that conversation for a couple minutes and jump to the backstory to the whole thing. Fourteen months before the fire, um, I had been feeling really bad for a while, but then it became clear that I had a very large kidney stone. And uh, kidney stones are common. They're not very pleasant, but they're very treatable. My condition should have been treated in a um, procedure or two, but it didn't work that way. Uh, it ended up taking 13 procedures over the course of close to a year to make things right. Mistakes were made, complications followed, and I had um, a really rough time of it. Um, it. There was lasting damage. I was in a narcotic haze for much of the time. It was a very challenging period. During the middle of that mess, uh, my mother started calling two, three o'clock in the morning, and uh, we had moved her nearby, uh, some years earlier, as I said in the earlier part, and um, she started calling saying that she was out on the road looking for a dog. And that was bad enough for an 88-year-old with problems to be out on the road, but her dog had died 10 years earlier. Uh, my mother had advanced dementia and she was failing fast. 
So during that period, we decided it was time to move her in with us, um, or that we were going to move in with her. Uh, we had actually been considering a remodel of our home, and we had wanted to bring her in with us, but with the uh, physical mess I was in, uh, we didn't want to take on the chaos of a remodel. So we did move in with her. We uh, minimized the disruption. She was confused. She really didn't know that we were living with her for months because we had lived so nearby, and um, it was just confusing to her to have us there more often, but she still thought we went home at night. So we just brought over our bed. I brought over my office gear. I have a home office. We brought a few clothes, but that was about it. Everything else stayed back at our home. At the end of uh, 13 months, I was doing much better with the kidney issues, but I had one other problem, and that's I have congenitally deformed hips, and I needed to have a hip replacement. So this amounted to my, I believe, 15th procedure in 14 months. Uh, it went great. It was a piece of cake compared to the other issues I'd been through. The uh, healing went well. The day of the fire came, so now we're back to uh, the incident where I had the conversation with the fire chief. Dementia is difficult at its best, and this particular day was going really poorly. Um, my mother was balking at everything I was suggesting. Again, she didn't understand why I was there. I needed to get her to an appointment. She didn't know why. Uh, she thought she was still taking herself to appointments. And we never had an incident quite this bad before or after where she simply refused to cooperate. But on that day, that's what happened. She just wouldn't cooperate. So I had to cancel the appointment. And when things like that would happen, anything of that nature, I'd clear out of the house for a bit. It was best to give ourselves some space from each other. So I headed back over with our dog to our old house. And I brought some laundry with me. I threw it in. Uh, by the time I had the laundry going, I stepped into the living room, and our dog was sunning herself in her favorite spot. But she hadn't been there for a year. So it was really kind of delightful to see her there, to have things a bit back to how they had been in the past. And so I talked to my dog, and I said, I, I agree with you. I love this place just the way it is. We don't need to remodel anything. We just need to get our lives back. And our dog is a very perceptive creature. She looked at me, and she said, I don't agree with you, Daddio. Uh, my, my dog calls me Daddio. And uh, she... Uh, said, life has changed. You're going to have to deal with it. And besides that, you're talking to a dog, and that's not a very healthy sign right there. <laughs> so I uh, gathered up the dog and brought her back to my mother's. My mother wanted nothing to do with me, but she was happy to have her dog back. She, our dog was my mother's best therapy, so I planted her in my mother's lap, and I took care of a few things. I headed back to our house. I pulled the laundry out of the washing machine, stuck it in the dryer. And then I went to an area where I had some clutter that I'd been wanting to deal with. And within the clutter, I found a surprise. It was some incense. And we don't burn incense. But a few years earlier, we had been at a Native American village. It was a beautiful place. We hadn't purchased anything. And it was just kind of a last-minute decision, grab some incense to uh, pay something, and brought it home and didn't use it. So I uncovered it after about four to five years of it sitting there. And I took a fresh look at it, and the packaging was beautiful. It had some Native American designs on it. But it also had three sentences in English, and I'm not going to get it perfect, but they went something like, when life overwhelms, as the smoke drifts skyward, answers are revealed. I could use some answers. 
So I uh, pulled out a lighter, I lit the incense. I'm not familiar with incense, it was smoking a lot. The house had been closed up for the night, it was very cool the night before. And so um, I got the stuff out of there. I was very careful with it, I brought it outside, I planted it in the ground some distance away from the house and uh, headed back to see mom. I checked on her, she was happy with her dog but didn't want to see me, I took care of some tasks, headed back to our house, probably about 45 minutes elapsed. And as I got to the door, I could still hear the dryer running, which was a little unusual. I thought I'd been gone long enough. But then when I opened the door, the real shock occurred. Smoke billowed out. And it was overwhelming. It was toxic. It was stunning. And it was so noxious that I immediately started gagging, couldn't see. I had to close the door. Um, I probably coughed and cleared my eyes for about 20 seconds. And the mind races. You try to find reason with something like this. And so the only thing I could think was something was going on with the dryer. It was the only thing in the house even plugged in. So I had to back in. I didn't know what I was going to do, but I wanted to get to the dryer to see if that's where the problem was. And I could see nothing, so by feel and memory, I made my way to the dryer. I opened the door, it shut off, but nothing else. So I stepped back into the hallway, and again, I could see nothing, but then in the distance, I could see a ball of flame. It was about the size of a basketball, and it just seemed to be suspended in the air. And again, it made no sense what it was doing there. I had to get out of the house to get a breath of air. I had been holding my breath. And when I got outside, I started to reason again. I think the ball of flame may be above where the dryer vent feeds under the house. So the next plan was get into the kitchen where you know a fire extinguisher is. So I got my breath, headed back in. And as I got in the vicinity of the flames, I started to step awkwardly. Something was on the floor. Many things were on the floor. And what I didn't know, what I couldn't see, was that the kitchen cabinets had collapsed. So I was walking on glass, plates, um, bowls. And with a new hip and being a little on, off balance, I suddenly was uh, staggering all over the place, twisting and turning. And I realized I didn't know where I was in the house. So I had to pause and gather myself, and I located the fireball. And quite fascinatingly, I had seconds to go before it would be too late. But the fireball, which was causing the damage to the house, was what allowed me to orient myself and get myself out of the house. I got out. That was it. Three tries was enough. I had it back. I got a phone. I didn't have a phone with me when I was at our house. I called 911, told them, that I suspected it was a, a dryer vent fire and gave them our address. And here comes mom. I'm heading back outside. Mom can't make it to an appointment in the morning, but she's going to help me put out a fire. So God bless her. She was still my mother trying to help. I got her back in the house, headed to our house, and as I got nearby, I spotted the incense. And it was the first time I made the association, and I wanted to throw up. The first on the scene was a sheriff's deputy, and he was quickly followed by two crews of firefighters from two different stations. There were EMS vehicles, there were gawkers coming by, a TV station showed up, volunteer firefighters came, it was a mess. And I was responsible for bringing them all there. Here comes mom again, had to bring her back home. As I got back, I overheard a couple of the firefighters who were still gearing up saying, this house is so unbelievably hot but there's no flames. When we open the door, the thing might blow. So then the fire chief was chasing people down the street, telling them to get out of the way. I thought I was going to kill someone 
with my stupidity. A couple guys headed in first. Um, they were in there a very short time. They brought a large hose in, and they stuck their heads out quickly, gave a thumbs up, and then in poured a bunch of other responders. They started beating down windows. They set up large fans to vent the smoke out of the house so they could see. Now they were beating down walls, cabinets, flooring. They must have been there for a couple hours. Um, they explored every inch of the house. Flames had shot up um, electrical outlets, so walls were on fire. Beams were on fire that didn't seem to be anywhere near the initial fire, but because of the way the fire was spreading, they had to check every ounce of the house. When it was finally settled, that's when the fire chief said, write everything down. I couldn't sleep that night. I didn't sleep a bit. I did write and write, but I came to no conclusions. It made no sense. I had no idea what I had done wrong. I knew I lit the incense. I knew I carried it out carefully. I planted it way away from the house. I just couldn't believe that this had started the fire. So I called the fire chief first thing in the morning. He was kind enough to come out immediately. And as we went to go back into the house, he said, what kind of lighter did you use? And I said, how did you know it was a lighter? And he said, because we found evidence that it exploded. And uh, so I explained that it was a purple, no-name piece of garbage that some idiot had pitched from the road into our yard. I picked it up. It was full of butane. And I kept it because I don't like to see things go to waste. So that was the cause of the fire. I've explained that story to a lot of people in the several years since it occurred, and it's interesting the responses I get. And quite often, many will associate it with the incense. They'll say, well, you were lost. The incense said, when the smoke drifts skyward, answers are revealed. You didn't know what to do about your mother, about remodeling, uh, which house to keep. It certainly sent you in the direction. I respect that opinion. I, uh, I appreciate when people try to make sense out of the chaos, but my view on it is that what we encountered was the random acts of the universe. It was weapons-grade stupidity and chaos that we encountered. Uh, you're familiar with earthquakes. I like the concept of a crap quake. That's much like an earthquake, except crap is the element that's involved. We had an 8.8 crap quake as measured on the crap McGrath. And a crap McGrath is much like a seismograph, but it measures crap. And the, the important thing to realize is that an 8.8 crap quake is actually 22 times more powerful than a 6.8 crap quake. And that's the way crap McGraths work, and that's all the science I can give you on that. Um, if it was a storm, it was an F5 crapnado. And it's odd that I think about this, but I think of dogs a lot. So I was trying to think if this entire experience could be encapsulated into a breed of a dog, what kind of dog might it be? And I'm convinced it would be a Shih Tzu. Um, the, uh, I could try to use the word crap zoo, but the American Kennel Club doesn't recognize it as an official breed. So this was one. And, and Shih Tzus are uh, normally miniature breeds but this was one major shih tzu that we dealt with. <laughs> when I do try to make meaning out of this ex entire experience, I go back to that conversation with my wife. Um, when I explained that it had been a fire, she didn't believe me. 
she really didn't. She kept challenging me, saying it was a bad joke. And finally, I think I got through to her that it was true, and she went silent. And I said, I, uh, I don't know what to say. I'm standing here in front of this mess, and I don't know whether to laugh or cry. And she uh, came back and she said, none of it matters. If you're okay, we'll be okay. We control so little in this life, but one thing we can control is how we react to the shih tzus of our experiences. And to know that the person I love could take all this in that had occurred over the past year and just come back with a focus on me and being okay, that gave me hope that one day again, things would be okay. Thank you. That was Dave Murphy. Coming up next, Crystal Frost, who tells us about the first time she visited prison. So I've been to prison dozens of times. <laughs> and I know that sounds a little crazy, but it is true. The first time that I went to prison will always stand out in my mind as something a little special, I guess. <laughs> my sister and I were headed to see my brother who had been uh, in prison for six months, and there are some really um, interesting rules that go along with what happens when someone you love is incarcerated. One of those rules is that for the first several months, uh, you cannot even talk to them. They can't call you on the phone, and they go somewhere in Jackson, and they are um, in quarantine, and they're not allowed to have visitors, and they're really not allowed to leave this, this space. And I didn't see my brother for six months. The last time I saw him was his day of sentencing. And I didn't know what this would mean for us. I didn't know what it would mean for my family. I didn't know if this was really going to be the thing that ripped us apart. So when we finally were able to go see my brother who was at the Newberry Correctional Facility, he finally got into this, pr this prison. He was going to be in for uh, several years. I said, I'm coming to visit you. And then, of course, like any good big sister does, I made my little sister go with me. And we were crossing the mighty Mac and I had the windows down and the radio up because that's what I have to do when I cross any long bridge. I have to crank the windows down and crank the radio up and that's just something that I have to do. And then the windows stayed down, mostly because when my sister gets very nervous, she gets incredibly obnoxious gas. And so we are driving, and we're nervous, and we're laughing, and we're telling strange stories, and we're not talking about what it is that we're actually doing, and my sister's farting the whole time. <laughs> and I told her to pay attention to the signs. I said, we're going to go to a prison, so look for the signs that say, do not pick up hitchhikers, right? Because that's what you see in the movies, that the prison is in the middle of nowhere, and that's just what it is. And that's not how it worked out. When we drove into Newberry, it said, welcome to Newberry, and then there was a gas station, and then there was a school, and then there was a prison. And that's what it was. And for the first time, my sister Kayla and I looked at each other, and we realized where we were, and that means that it was real. 
that my brother really had been in prison for six months, that we hadn't really spoken other than on the phone. And when you speak to someone on the phone in prison, he doesn't speak loudly, but everybody around him seems to be speaking really, really loudly. And when you ask him things like, how are you doing, he doesn't really give you a real answer because he can't. And I said, it's actually a really pretty building. And she said, are you kidding me right now? <laughs> but it was. If you took away the fence and the razor wire, it was a pretty building. And there they were. And they were all out in the yard. And we could see them in the yard. And she said, oh, look, prisoners. And it was so unbelievably uncomfortable. But all we could do was to laugh. When you visit a prison, there's a lot of work that you have to do. In, in the first place, when someone goes to prison, everything starts sounding like a cash register. That every time you do talk to that person, you know it's going to cost you about $3. And every time that person needs something, you know that's going to cost you some money. You're allowed to send a certain amount of money, and, um, and he needs to buy everything. You know, I think a lot of people have this idea that, oh, they're getting three squ square meals a day in a free room and board and all that other stuff, and it's not true. He doesn't get soap or deodorant or anything, so the people left back at home have to provide all of that stuff. And it's really, really hard because he knows how much it feels like a burden to us. And you don't want to say any of those things, but you're sitting back going, I might have to get a second job to put my brother through prison. And there's a lot of application process. You have to get clearance to visit. You can't just show up and be like, hey, I'm here to see someone. You have to fill out an application. You have to make sure that you yourself haven't uh, been in trouble before. If you, if you have been to prison, you can no longer visit prison. Uh, and if you know someone else who's been in prison and you're on their list, then you cannot see more than one prisoner at, at one point. And I wish I were joking about this, but I was really nervous that somehow when I went to go visit him, that I would actually have to stay forever. And I know that sounds crazy, but there's something about seeing the fence and then going, what if I have to stay here forever? What if they don't let me out? When we went to visit my brother, we read all the rules. Like I, I literally read everything like it was prison for dummies, and I followed none of them. <laughs> I showed up wearing yoga pants and flip-flops, and yoga pants in a men's prison is probably not the right thing to do, but they didn't say anything about that. However, my, my sister was wearing um, a hoodie, and she was not allowed to wear a hoodie, nor could she wear a headband, so she had to go back to the car. She had to figure out something to, else to wear. We ended up having to go to the family dollar in Newberry and, uh, and get her some new clothes to wear. And all of that happened, and when we finally had the right clothes on, we walked up to this very nice corrections officer who I've now become very good friends with. His name is Whitmer. And I said, hello, we would like to see a prisoner, please. And he said, well, we've got a few. Could you be more specific? <laughs> and so I said I, I needed to see my brother, and he said, what's his number? And I started rattling off his phone number. <laughs> But in prison, everybody gets a number that they have for the rest of their life. And if they ever go back in, they have that same number. It's, and I didn't know it, so he helped me look him up. And he told us all about the other things that are in there. My brother was very specific about needing to have a Mountain Dew because he hadn't had a soda in six months. 
and also needing some uh, chips. And he said, I've heard that there's a vending machine in the visiting area. Could you please bring uh, some, some money so that we could have these foods that I've been craving like, like crazy? And so I brought $80 because I kind of thought <laughs> that maybe it was like Disneyland, you know? Like everything is really expensive. And I wasn't wrong, actually. I, bought, I brought this money with me, and there's a very s specific system where you have to actually buy, bring cash, but then you have to buy a card for $3 from the prison guard, and then you put the cash on that card. And so I had no idea, even though I had read all this stuff, how to do any of this, and this man had to walk me through everything. And at one point, I apologized and said, I'm so sorry, I'm not good at this. And he said, that's not necessarily a bad thing. <laughs> but I'll tell you, I'm really good at it now, and I've taken so many people to visit my brother. I've, I've seen my brother uh, 20 times in the last two years, and I've seen other people. I've taken my mom with me, I've taken my husband with me, and I get to see their faces as they hear the things that I heard, like when you walk through and you have to get patted down, and you have to open your mouth, and you have to take out your pockets, and then you walk in and you hear that door slam, and you realize that he isn't leaving, that I've been here 20 times, but he has not left. And when you're sitting there and for just a glimpse because you're talking about all of the things he's doing in prison, like the fact that he has four bands now. I, don't, I didn't know you could be in a band in prison, but he's in four of them. One of their names is not guilty. And we get to have these conversations that make me feel like I'm talking to my little brother before all of this terrible stuff happened, before he was drinking, before he was using drugs. And then I realize that he can't stand up. So it's not the same. Because he has to be seated the entire time with his hands on the table. And he has to be facing the corrections officer. And that isn't funny. You know, there's a lot of different reasons why people get into trouble, and there's a lot of different reasons that, you know, people end up going to jail. And I've never doubted that my brother should be in prison. But what happens to that person is that time stops for them. It literally stops. They, he went into prison on February 6th, and he hasn't moved forward at all. He's there every day in a bubble. He has no idea what's going on. He doesn't know that Apple has a new phone other than what he sees on TV. He doesn't know anything that's happening. He's just completely stopped. And there's really not much you can talk about after that point because if you ask him how he's doing, that's a really stupid question. He has done a lot of things while he was in prison though. He finished high school, graduated at the top of his class, and they literally let him wear a cap and gown, which I thought was really cute. <laughs> and he is now going to school to be a plumber, although he's not allowed to use any of the tools, which he says is really interesting when you're just trying to take a test to be a plumber, having never actually plumbed anything. <laughs> but you're a prisoner, so you're not allowed to have a plumber's wrench. So it's really kind of tough. He has been really spiritual, and he runs something that I'm really proud of, where he donates to prisoners that have no family 
and he gets all of these items like soap and shampoo and um, toothbrushes and toothpaste, and he donates to everyone who doesn't have anybody giving them anything. It's really strange to think that my brother is doing better in that place than he ever did on the outside, and he'll be out in about 18 months, and I think I'm really nervous that he's not going to make it on the outside. To put it into perspective, when I think about how long it's going to be until he comes out, that means that's 18 payments of $50 a month and six more care packages that I am allowed to send him before he gets out. That first visit, though, somehow we spent our eight hours in prison, which is the most you're allowed, and he got to sit on a bench, and we got to leave. And I looked behind me when we left, and he was smiling. And every time I visited him since, I do the same thing. I look behind me, and he's smiling. And I just really hope he can continue to do that. Thank you. That was Crystal Frost. You're listening to Summer Reruns, a live storytelling event that was put on by Hearsay and Interlochen Public Radio. The show took place on July 16th at Interlochen Center for the Arts. Now, IPR's Kate Batello hosted the evening of storytelling back in July, and she had a few short stories of her own. Here's Kate. So the, the overall theme for the evening, uh, these storytelling evenings generally have a theme, and t- tonight's theme is summer reruns, the idea of stories, favorite stories that we've heard before and are bringing back tonight. These were all curated specifically for tonight throughout the year. So I was thinking about things that I have done repeatedly in life. What's something I've done over and over again? We talked about summer traditions, things like that. And I have a bit of a strange thing that I've done the most often or repeated the most often in my life, and that is play Judy Garland. <laughs> yeah, I, I have been or was or whatever at one point a professional Judy Garland impersonator for 20 years. <laughs> yeah. It's an interesting gig, I'm sure you can imagine. Uh, and the very first time I did Judy was in a show called Christmas with the Crawfords. This was in San Francisco, and it was about Joan Crawford on Christmas Eve having an interview with Hedda Hopper, which is then immediately ruined by many other celebrities showing up and singing songs and interrupting her. So I was Judy in this show, and we had this Joan. Now this Joan, Miss Androgynous, okay? Her boy name was Paul Anelli, but we called her Miss Ann. Now Miss Ann was a diva a superstar, a genius. I mean, she was a fierce actor, singer, dancer, and when I say fierce, I mean this, this talented being could sit on a couch and kick up her leg to her ear. <laughs> and she would just sit there and have a whole conversation while this beautiful uh, high heel is sticking up right here next to her face sipping Pepsi, because that was Joan Crawford's favorite beverage. So she was incredibly talented. Now, it's important that you know, before I go on, that eventually, Miss Ann and I were cool. (laughs) Eventually. We were cool. But 
Not only was she spectacularly talented, she was also spectacularly mean. And one night, I was out on stage, two or three nights into the, into the run of the show, singing my song, Winter Wonderland, jazzy thing, really cute. And I start noticing that the faces out in the audience are not here. They're here, up here somewhere. So I kind of find a way to turn around and look upstage. And there's Miss Anne, Miss Joan Crawford, doing anything she can do, all kinds of crazy shenanigans to upstage me. She's got her ankle up to her ear, and she's sipping a Pepsi. So I, outclassed, finish my number, go on with the show. Well, now, after about a week of this, where the shenanigans were just getting worse and worse and worse, I finally was sitting backstage in absolute tears. And the playwright came over to me and I said, look, I just feel like I'm engaged in this epic drag battle to the death from which there is no escape. And I don't know what to do. So the playwright said, okay, come here, honey. Here's what you're going to do. The next time she does this, you're going to... Okay. So the next night, I go out on stage. And this time, it's even worse than usual. I mean, I'm like two bars into the song, and the faces are up. And you know, not even halfway through the song, everybody's gone. Just everybody's leaning back, watching whatever's happening up here. And I turn around, and I see Miss Androgynous, Miss Joan Crawford, upside down, doing the splits, bottoming an entire Pepsi until it is gone. And so after the show, or after the song, I just looked up to her and I said, very concerned, well, what's the matter, Miss Crawford? Did someone drop a house on your sister? <laughs> and after that, we were cool. That was Kate Patello. Our next storyteller to the stage is Ben Whiting. And Ben tells us about the time he first met his wife and the crazy party that followed. So, this group of people was a lot more fun before you started marrying each other, said one of my younger friends uh, to the rest of the group. Uh, and she was upset because she felt we were not fully committing and participating in a game that we uh, call Yes And. Now, if you're involved in theater or if you've ever been a part of an improv group, you know the term Yes And. Uh, it's a concept that consists of two parts, the first being Yes, whatever circumstances life throws at us, whatever decisions our friends make, we are going to say yes, we are going to commit to those, we're going to embrace them. That's the first part. Now the second part is and. Not only are we going to embrace and commit to these circumstances and or decisions, we are going to contribute, we are going to add to them to take the energy of the group and propel it forward. And it can be difficult sometimes to make bold decisions, but when you're surrounded by people that you know are going to say yes, it's a lot easier. And it can make for some epic stories. It, it's what can take you from a hungover breakfast at a greasy spoon at the beginning of the day, and at the end of the day puts you in an inner tube in a kiddie pool in an indoor water park drinking vodka cherry slushies. It's what can take you from a goodbye brunch at a French cafe 
to calling Delta Airlines so you can cancel your flight home, reschedule it, and then use money you don't have to rent a limousine to take you to the dance club that is where? Three blocks away from the French cafe. <laughs> now the more pragmatic of you will realize that there is another edge to this sword. This is off playing yes and can also take you from like, yeah, I think it's a great idea. Now let's take three bottles of rum on the boat to, man, I promise you, I'm going to help you clean the side of your boat as soon as we get it out of the water. <laughs> now this story begins in Traverse City, Michigan. I had been living in Chicago for about 10 years and had never come up to Traverse City for more than like a weekend canoe trip. But I had the great honor and privilege uh, to be cast in, a cast in a play by Traverse City's own Parallel 45 Theater, our own professional theater company right here in Traverse City. Uh, I was playing Smee in their production of A Terrible Tragedy of Peter Pan, a very swarthy and off-white kind of Smee. And one day we were in rehearsal, and oh, by the way, if you don't know Parallel 45, these guys are Jedi masters of the yes and game. And they were the ones that really kind of enlightened me to the fact that yes and is not just something for the stage or the rehearsal room. It can actually be, actually be a pretty fun lifestyle if you commit to it. So I was in this play, and one day we were having lunch, and it hit me like a brick wall. A girl walks in the room wearing a red dress, a sexy eyebrow ring. Eyebrow ring. She was bringing us lunch. And what really got me is she wasn't bringing us lunch just to give us lunch. It was her birthday. And what she wanted to do for her birthday was feed other people. And it really stuck out to me. And so I got to know her. Turns out she was the executive director of Parallel 45 Theater. And I asked my friends about her. And they're like, yeah, yeah, she's hanging out. She's kind of single. And I was like, OK, all right. I might be from Chicago. She might have home field advantage, but I can play this yes and game. <laughs> so I walked up to her and I said, you know what? I hear there might be an epic party happening tonight at the actor house where all the actors were staying and living. And she says, you know what? I just might be there. Yes and, oh man. It was on, and I committed myself to making that night a yes and palooza. It was going to be an epic party. So people were saying they wanted booze. Yes, and I'm actually going to go in the woods and pick mint leaves and make some tasty mojitos for you guys. Some people want music. Yes, and I'm going to hook my jam box up to it so not only can we hear it, but we can dance to it. People want grilled cheese sandwiches? Yes! And not only are we going to make those, I'm going to put some brown sugar on them because that junk is delicious. <laughs> and and you, you know the fastest way to a girl's heart? It's through the peer pressure of her friends and family. And they were eating them sandwiches up. Everything was going great. And then I started the schmoozing game. I went up to her best friend. And I was getting all the dirt, the books she liked, the movies she liked, the music she listened to. And even as an added bonus, she was like, hey, you know those t-shirts you cut the collars off of? You might not want to wear those around her. <laughs> and then her brother was there. And man, this guy 
was so cool. We hit it off. We were talking about Breaking Bad. He was eating up the sandwiches. He was a little kind of put off by the whole yes and culture. But you know what? He was living in the moment. He was embracing it. Life was good. The party was on. So I decided to send the text. I get my phone. and I send the text to the girl. I say, you know what? This might be the most epic party Traverse City has ever seen. <laughs> and she responds, I might just be on my way. I was on cloud nine, and it seems like instantly everything started going wrong. <laughs> the party was deflating. You know that moment at a party where everyone's like trying to decide if there's going to be a second wind or not? And I was like <gasps> gasping for everyone. We were like running out of booze. There was only light beer. And you know, when you think about it, light beer is only really good if you already have momentum. Think about it. <laughs> yes. And then there was this clique of girls who were like so upset because I didn't have Usher on my phone. I'm sorry, I, I was raised in Atlanta, Georgia. I didn't listen to Usher. And then, of course, we ran out of bread for the grilled cheeses. It was just going so bad. People were complaining because it was hot, and I'd had a little bit to drink, and so I decided, you know what, let's just, let's just put the nail in the coffin. I was going to confess my whole scheme, my whole little plan. And who was I going to confess it to? My best friend, which would have been like something a normal person would have done, he was there. No. Am I going to confess it to her best friend, like a normal idiot would have done? No. I confessed it all to her brother. Yeah. And I was, like I said, I had a few to drink. I was like, hey, man, let's just call a spade a spade. Your sister is awesome. And I'm just dying here, man. I wanted this party to be awesome so she'd be impressed. And he just... He paused, and he looked at me quizzically, and then something changed, and he stood up with almost superhero-like status. And he says, listen up, you theater weirdos. I don't get this whole yes and crap thing you're doing, but I'm here tonight to teach you a new game. Tonight, we're playing no because. You think this party's dying? I say no, because now this is happening. He walks over the door, he kicks it open, and he leaves. It was kind of awkward, because he was gone, and the door just kind of closed back in. I really didn't know what to think at the moment, but then we heard it. Bum, 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 bum. What's that? Everyone got really quiet. Bum, 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 bum. That little click of girls, they were like meerkats looking for an eagle. Like, what is that? What? Bum, 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 bum. Yeah, kicks the door in the other way, comes back in. This man was a DJ. And he had his stuff with him. He comes in, Mirrorball, strobe lights, all the equipment, and man, it became a night of no because. <laughs> you think we're out of booze? No, because we're walking down the street getting it and carrying it back. You think 
we're out of bread, there's not going to be more grilled cheeses? No, because we're making grilled cheese hot dogs, and those are going to be even more delicious. <laughs> you think it's too hot in this room? No, because we're taking our clothes off and going skinny dipping. You think you can't see the stars? No, because we're climbing on the roof and watching them from up there. You think we're going to shoot off that starter pistol we found in the basement a few times? No, because the cops are going to show up after you shoot it once. <laughs> and that's how that night ended. <laughs> but it was one of the most epic nights of my life. And I realized that it doesn't matter what game you're playing. It's just about choosing to play a game. Am I still that Chicago guy, actor, whatever? No, because I moved to Traverse City. <laughs> Am I still hitting on that girl? No, because now she's my wife. <laughs> Am I still friends with that DJ? No, because now he's one of my best friends and my brother-in-law. <laughs> and I always tell a man, no matter what life gives us, whether it's yes and or no because, I'm game. Thank you. That was Ben Whiting. Finally this evening, a story from Elon Cameron, who reminds us beginnings are magical. It's a bright fall day. It's the first day of school. The first day of college my first day of college. I'm not sure it feels any different than high school, but just to be safe, Trisha is gonna meet me in front of the fine arts building as a touch point. Most of my friends are starting at different universities. Some are Ivy League, some went to U of M, State, Western, and such. I didn't do well in high school. Having two undiagnosed learning disabilities and an interesting rash of psycho-emotional disorders didn't set me up as an ideal student <laughs> during those years. Um, I always wanted to do well, but these things kind of led me to this experience of the wish to working hard, meeting with the firm wall of reality within the first weeks of any given semester. Beginnings are magical. Everyone knows this, whether it's a relationship or a building project, a series of non-adhesive Japanese bookbinding, <laughs> a quilt, a book. They have all this energy around them, so full of energy that that initiation feeling, that sense of activation, the beginning of something, and what will it grow into? Will it grow? The school year will always be this way for me, whether I'm thinking about my memories of second grade or this coming year when I finish my clinical doctorate in Chinese medicine. <clears throat> I tolerate technology and doing coursework online, but I'm still a very paper-driven human being, as exampled here. I love a good collection of post-it tabs, freshly sharpened pencils the paper that still crinkles when you bend it and the package tightly packed together. Maybe a little OCD, that's okay. But the first day, it could be anything. Maybe that's why I love January 1st and Rosh Hashanah so much, because those days are so full of opportunity, like the whole year is just laying its potential at your feet. 
I've adopted a superstition from my best friend that what you do on New Year's Day can shape your experience for the whole year. So it's often a day of eating special foods like Hoppin' John and apples with honey, as well as spending time with friends. I like the sense of taking time to celebrate a holiday after a holiday, honoring time's passage with ritual, with reverence. Outfits matter too. An outfit you believe in can be the difference between having a transcendent experience and a total dud of a day. This doesn't have to be true for you, but it is most certainly true for me. Feeling supported by unseen forces in my experience may require a good outfit power. So my first day of college, I was killing it. <laughs> I was wearing this like purple and blue dress with black stripes, tights. I was wearing a short jacket. I was wearing my Dr. Martin's boots. I was listening to a mixtape that was a work in progress. See, the mixtape in this story is the only thing that sets me apart from a college student today. It's like just utter, obvious proof in my mind that like the goth aesthetic may come and go, but the style never dies. But obviously, this was 1991, because I was listening to a mixtape that I was working on, the working title of which was In the Absence of Self-Esteem, <laughs> with tracks like Pictures of Matchsticks Men and You by Camper Van Beethoven, R.E.M.'s Superman, Where Is My Mind, Kiss Them For Me, Heroes, Smells Like Teen Spirit, songs that gave me strength, or maybe even hope, or just songs that made me feel happy for a minute. Because at age 18, I really need a full-blown pep rally every day to get out of the house. But not the first day. No, this day, I'm full of hope and some blustery ego, probably because of the tunes I'm listening to. I feel attuned to the subtle warmth of the autumn sun, the temperate air. I'm walking to college. This isn't high school. Though several of my friends do call NMC, which is right next door to Central High School, where I went to high school, over the fence university. <laughs> Still, I'm mildly delighted. I'm slightly beaming. I cross at a major intersection, someone honks. They can tell. <laughs> I wave excitedly. This is clearly going to be an extraordinary day. <laughs> Taking a shortcut, I cross at the light, and give more happy waves. They wave back. I walk onto campus, pausing for a moment, thinking, I hope this is the moment everything changes. I hope this is the moment everything gets better. I felt that way at the beginning of every year. It didn't matter how horrible things were like fourth grade in the midst of my parents' dramatic and long drawn out divorce, the house my mom and I lived in, my childhood home, burned, scorched everything. It was so weird. School started two months later, and I was already getting A's and mastering the popularity puzzle in my mind on the first day. My first year of college was pretty awful too, in fact, peppered with a couple of minor successes and moments of good fortune. I published some photography, I met my friend Shane, but major depressive episodes and agoraphobia entered my life at that point. I know this now, I've had a lot of help, don't worry about me. 
When I met Shane, who feels like having a familiar in this world, he was sitting on my friend's dorm room floor wearing his orange and red striped turtleneck. It was like my favorite thing he wore, because even though we hadn't met yet, I'd been smiling at him across campus for months. Just a big, big, big-hearted smile, just grinning like the village idiot at this person I didn't even know the name of. And so when I met him in my friend's dorm room, he was like, why do you always smile at me like that? And I was like, didn't even give it a thought. I was like, because I like you. And we were friends ever since. See, despite my heavy emotional nature, I have this paradoxical tendency. I'm endlessly optimistic and horribly disappointed most of the time at the same time. I can be so extremely hopeful, disappointed, that I can even talk myself out of delightful experiences I haven't even enjoyed slash endured yet. <laughs> I don't know if that's immaturity or if it's just the human condition, but anticipation is a constant, at least for me. And with the arrival of these perfectly imperfect moments, these experiences of life, they bring such joy sorrow the more beautiful, the more heartbreaking, the greater the sadness at the moment's passing. The first day of school has a special shield against disappointment, though. It is a day of promise, a day of starting fresh. The requisite outfit I believed in and all the pluck in the world. I walk past the Deno Sumter. I'm stepping foot onto a new place. The science building on my left. I'm wandering through campus. Only excitement. There's no one I'm avoiding here. This is my school. <clears throat> my new school. I'm a big kid now. Marching along, I notice that people are happy here. Smiling, laughing, continuing the fun, nodding and waving. It feels good. I'm among my people. I like this campus. It's so full of wildlife, pine-covered walkways, huge trees. I love that feeling that we're so small in time being watched over by these comforting giants. I walk past the library. I love libraries. I totally want to work there. The Mark and Helen Osterlin Library. They have this beautiful mid-century lettering on the side of the wall with a stark cement background. Like, this is a place where a lot of smart things happen. Really, really smart things happen in here, and you know it by the silence and the height of the people who work in the circulation desk. I swear to you, they only employed people who were over six feet tall for a good decade. It was like, I like this book, please. I walk past the library. I make it finally to the art building. I love the art building at NMC, too. The Okerstrom Fine Arts Building. It was designed by a Bauhaus architect before he got involved in any kind of weird business, before the Bauhaus movement was a little tainted by their political affiliation. It's this crazy structure of cedar, big windows pointing toward the sky. If you haven't seen it, you should check it out. I can feel the potential all around me. All of these minds seeking experience, seeking the opportunity to give voice to their muse. And there's Trisha. I've made it. My first checkpoint. My first day of college. I wonder if I'll be a visiting professor here someday. I start to think about professorial outfits. 
And then I look at Trisha's face, which is all twisted up in this laugh that looks like she smelled something funny and awful at the same time. And she says, oh, sweetheart, your dress is entirely tucked into your tights. <laughs> the fury of blushing, a full body flush of embarrassment, the quick adjustment, the realization that everyone was kind of having a laugh at my expense. And I could have really freaked out at that moment but I didn't. I just joined the laughing, because it's the first day of college. And of course, that's so totally me. Thank you. Hearsay is a live storytelling show staged monthly in Traverse City, Michigan. Our podcast is produced by A.J. Scott. Thank you to Interlochen Center for the Arts and Interlochen Public Radio for collaborating on summer reruns. Find out more about Hearsay at our website, hearsaystorytelling.com. This is Karen Stein, Hearsay's founder and creative director. Be sure to listen to part two of Summer Reruns. Thanks for listening. Cool, cool? Cool. All right. Part two. (sighs) Welcome to the Hearsay Storytelling Podcast. I'm Karen Stein. Hearsay is a monthly show dedicated to the art of telling stories on stage. This episode, Summer Reruns, was recorded live on July 16, 2017 at the Upton Morley Pavilion at Interlochen Center for the Arts in Interlochen, Michigan. This show was recorded by Interlochen Public Radio and broadcast in two parts by IPR in October 27. Fuck. <laughs> I almost had it. <laughs> All right. Welcome to the Hearsay Storytelling Podcast. I'm Karen Stein. Hearsay is a monthly show dedicated to the art of telling stories on stage. This episode, Summer Reruns, was recorded live on July 16, 2017, at the Upton Morley Pavilion at Interlochen Center for the Arts in Interlochen, Michigan. This show was recorded by Interlochen Public Radio and broadcast in two parts by IPR in October 2017. Here is part two. Hearsay is a live storytelling show staged monthly in Traverse City, Michigan. Our podcast is produced by A.J. Scott. Thank you to Interlochen Center for the Arts and Interlochen Public Radio for collaborating on this show. Find out more about Hearsay at our website, hearsaystorytelling.com. This is Karen Stein, Hearsay's founder and creative director. Join us on October 16, 2017 for our Season 5 opener, Go Hearsay, It's Your Birthday. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 